Welcome to Meals for Maturity, Bible talks to help you mature as a follower of Jesus, by Pastor Dom Fiocco. Welcome to another Meals for Maturity. Now the purpose of these Bible talks are never to take the place of you belonging to your church family and listening to your own pastor teach from God's Word. If you know me well, you'd know my high theology of church. That's not high church theology, but a high theology of church. That is the importance of gathering regularly, physically, with God's family together in Christ and journeying together around God's Word. So these Bible talks, Meals for Maturity, are not meant to replace your weekly regular diet of Bible teaching from your pastor, your pastor, by the way, who knows you best, who loves you best, and who can speak best into your world. Now, the purpose of these Bible talks are really to give you a bonus meal, if you like, to feed you more of God's Word, so you can continue uh, to mature in your thinking and, and behaving Christianly. That is, thinking more of God's thoughts after Him, thinking more of God's Word, hearing more of God's Word, and living more for God's kingdom wherever he's placed you, whether that's at work, at uni, at school, at home, perhaps even in retirement, whatever that is. Now, another purpose of Meals for Maturity is really to venture into perhaps neglected parts of God's Word, especially in the Old Testament. This Bible verse from Hebrews 5, verses 13 to 14, really sums up the purpose of why I'm doing Meals for Maturity. We read, For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognise the difference between right and wrong. So thanks for tuning in. And so now we come to Esther chapter 2. I said that last time you won't find the name or the word for God in the book of Esther, but that doesn't make it a godless book. The choreography of the Creator is very much uh, evident in understanding and applying uh, this wonderful story. The title or the word for God, it might be missing across the 10 chapters, but God is certainly not missing. He is not absent from this story. Uh, I've called the series, God Behind the Scene, the Ordinary, Extraordinary Outworkings of God Behind the Scene. Now in the wonderful book of Esther, God is behind the scene. He is working and weaving his divine purposes through beauty queens and prime ministers and kings and, and just the everyday drama of life in the Persian Empire of 480 years before Jesus. The book of Esther is a fascinating combination, uh, combination of Old Testament history and brilliant literature, carefully compiled by this unknown author, but he's telling us this great story. But of course, his storytelling is all under the God-breathed Holy Spirit guidance of all Scripture. Now, recalling Esther chapter 1, we find a small remnant of Israelites called the Jews in this story, and they're far away from their homeland in Jerusalem. Instead, they're living in exile in the land of Persia in the city of Susa. Now, these Jews, they could have returned to their native land under the edict of a previous king called Cyrus, but for some unknown reason, some have chosen to stay on in Persia. And for the Jews living in this foreign land, they really are in the minority. They're in a world that is dominated by spiritual and moral values, if we can call them that. But these values, they are at great variance from God's values revealed in his Old Testament law for his people. 
And what's more, the Jewish people in Susa, they have no Jewish king on the throne or defence force to call on or real estate to call their own or pay interest on. They've got no temple to worship in, no priest to guide them, and they have no prophets coming along speaking God's word to them. They are indeed aliens and strangers in a foreign land. And all through Esther chapter 1, we keep hearing about this pagan king. He is the big man in, in the chapter until we realise he's actually larger than life but small in so many areas of life that really matters. King Ahasuerus is his name. That's his Hebrew translation. His Persian title is King Xerxes. Now I'm going to call him that because it's a little bit easier to say. King Xerxes' kingdom is vast and wide from India to Ethiopia, the extreme boundaries of the known world at the time. And his kingdom, we read, covers 127 provinces. That's probably the greatest empire before Rome turned up. Now, the tragedy of Esther chapter 1 is that what was simply a private domestic issue has now escalated to become a national crisis. And this will consume the empire and the king and his resources and many personnel. And isn't it amazing sometimes how private worldly matters can often be all-consuming for a society and matters that really matter, like justice, caring for the poor or the needy or the disadvantaged or showing compassion. All these things are sort of pushed off to the side. What we see in chapter 1 is a completely rotten, proud, pagan king who decides to hold a massive, extravagant back banquet feast. And such a long-winded party will actually change the course of the history of the world. So let's turn to chapter 2, where we move now from a party to a pageant. And let's hear about a Persian beauty pageant like no other. Chapter 2 After these things... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him, and won his favour, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. 
and every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazkar, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Well, after the partying and the hangovers have gone from chapter 1, King Xerxes realised that, uh, that getting rid of Queen Vashti was not one of his greatest moves. Still, the law of the Medes and Persians once made cannot be reversed, which is such a crazy law when you stop to think about it. Anyway, the search for Miss Persia begins. Now, we can learn a little bit more about this Persian King Xerxes from the Greek historian Herodotus, who's writing about this period of history, and it gives us detailed accounts of various wars that are happening between Persia and Greece. You see, before there were football games and World Cup competitions, this is how the nations used to get rid of built-up testosterone, yeah? have a good war with each other, beat the crap out of each other's armies, pour boiling water from the towers, fire fiery arrows at the enemy, that sort of thing. Herodotus also tells us that this Persian king was well known for his sensual overindulgence, especially after he lost battles and wars against the Greeks. Tragically, we also learned that every year about 500 young boys were castrated to serve in his Persian court. So I think it's fair to say that this king is a real dirtbag and one that you actually don't want to get in the road of, especially if you're a teenage boy or a beautiful teenage girl. The Persian court is no safe place to be. You're at the disposal of this, whether male or female, you're at the disposal of this tyrant ruler and his personal whim and very questionable morals, or lack thereof. Now, it's interesting that of the 16 people mentioned by name across chapter 1, you know, all those tricky names for Jen to pronounce, only King Xerxes remains in the story. The former Queen Vashti is now a, dis a distant memory. In fact, by the start of chapter 2, it's been four years since Vashti was banished. And now we read that a beauty contest is announced and the winner has the grand prize. They get to be king of this vast, powerful Persian empire. 
So the countryside is searched far and wide in order to find beautiful young virgins who take part in this beauty pageant. That's the three criteria mentioned across chapter 2, beauty, youth, virginity. Though verse 5 brings into view not a stunning young girl, but an ordinary bloke from Susa. But he's a pretty important fellow in the scheme of things. He's a Jew, that is an Israelite, who has chosen, for whatever reason, not to return to Jerusalem and rebuild under Nehemiah. But he's not just your everyday garden variety Jew living in Susa. The narrator makes it clear that we take notice of his family tree. Mordecai is his name. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Jair, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Kish. Now we'll come back to this important detail later on, but all through the book the narrator keeps reminding us that Mordecai is thoroughly Jewish. Now Mordecai the Jew has a cousin who's he, who he's virtually raised as his own daughter. She's an orphan. She too is Jewish and she has a great asset that is about to be put to great use, at least in this empire. Esther is stunningly beautiful. In verse 7, that's the only description at this stage about her. The Hebrew text is super clear. Esther is beautiful in form and lovely to look at. And so at Mordecai's insistence, she enters the Miss Persia contest. Now, scripture is silent about why Mordecai throws Esther to the lions or to this ravenous wolf. Scripture is also silent about how Esther feels about this tragic outcome. What is clear, though, about this story so far is that God's people are certainly out of sync with what God intends, indeed commands, uh, of his people under Old Testament law. Instead of showing us this contrast, you see, with the Israelites and the pagan Persians, we seem to have very little difference between the two. This time of exile in Susa is giving us this tragic case of intermingling between God's people and the nations. And across the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, this is never God's design. In fact, he will command against it. So God's people here in Susa have blended in with the pagan environment. We read nothing about Mordecai or Esther in this chapter pausing to pray or seeking God's powerful intervention, searching for his will. In great contrast, of course, to Daniel and his book, which is also set in the time of exile, but in Babylon. So I think it's fair to say at this point in the drama that Mordecai has his mind set on earthly matters and not on heavenly things, uh, to use a New Testament phrase. So Esther passes the first round, and after many months of beauty treatment and preparation, she makes it through to the semi-finals. Now in this chapter, we read that no expense has been spared by the king to prepare to take the, all these women to bed. It's interesting that we read in verses 8 and 9 that Esther finds favour with one of the king's eunuchs. We read Haggai in charge of preparing all these beautiful young women, uh, young virgins. Uh, Esther finds favour in his eyes. Now we know from the Joseph story in Genesis, we also, he also finds favour in a pagan court in Egypt. And so does Daniel in a pagan court of Babylon. Could it be here the unseen hand of God at work, even in this godless setting of a pagan beauty contest? How amazing is our unseen God that he chooses to work even in the heart of a, in the mind of a guy in charge of a Persian harem? Esther found favour with Haggai. And later in verse 15, Esther finds favour in the eyes of everyone who saw, sees her. So Esther wins through to the semi-final night, which is a night with the king, 
to do as he pleases with the Miss Persia entrance. Tragically, this beauty pageant turns out to be a one-night sexual audition with the king of Persia. Now, scripture is also silent here in its non-judgment of Esther's sexual behaviour. We go elsewhere in the Bible, of course, to find that sex outside of the marriage relationship, the marriage covenant between one man and one woman is never God's design. Scripture is also silent here concerning the degrading of women, reducing them to sexual playthings. But we also know from elsewhere in the Bible that this is never God's design. And it takes the Lord Jesus Christ to show us how women are lifted up to the same level, not higher, not lower, but equal to men in the sight of God, co-heirs in Christ upon repentance and faith in him. But what we're seeing in this story so far is a world fascinated and focused on externals. The men in Persia are measured by their wealth, by displays of power and authority, opulence, how much they can drink. The women... Well, they're judged by their beauty, youthfulness, sensuality. And even today, we're bombarded with the way the world judges people. So we have this advertising industry built around beauty products and clothing and externals to please the eye. And, you know, it takes God's word and his spirit to remind us of these great Bible truths. Remember 1 Samuel 16 verse 7? But the Lord says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, a person sees, a person looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Or you might remember 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, talking about women. Do not let your adorning be external, or merely external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewellery, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We need to keep reminding ourselves that external appearances can sometimes be deceiving. Do you remember the arrival of Susan Boyle on our TV screens back in 2009 and the, the TV show Britain's Got Talent? Susan Boyle, a middle-aged Scottish woman, 47 years old, not slender, not dolled up, no highlights in her hair, no tats of dragons or Lionel Messi on her arms. She's from a council home in a small Scottish village. She's unemployed. She's hardly prime-time viewing that will draw in this younger audience and wow them. But then Susan Boyle walks on the stage. Cameras are focused more on the judges and the staged audience. And then she opens her mouth to sing, I dreamed a dream. And my goodness, the whole TV audience, the whole judges, judging panel are blown away by the amazing voice of this unlikely woman. You see, based on external appearances, no one gives her a chance. What the judges and the audience didn't know were what was hidden inside this powerful, magnificent voice that blew away all the doubters. Friends, why do we continue to be like the Persian Empire and focus on externals? Let's keep going back to God's word and what truly matters in his sight. Well, in Esther chapter 2, verse 17, we read that Esther wins the final and she is crowned, literally, Miss Persia or Mrs. Persia. It's love at first night for the Persian king, and Esther the Jew is made queen of the empire. 
Now, one other important detail is disclosed, revealed to us in this chapter, or perhaps we should say not revealed, and that is Uncle Mordecai has given her strict instruction not to make her Jewishness public knowledge. So Esther is queen, but not even her husband, King Xerxes, knows about her family tree. Perhaps Mordecai is showing us that in this Persian empire, anti-Semitism, that is hatred of the Jews, is just lurking somewhere in the background. The book of Esther is a book full of secrets, and chapter 2 ends with another very crucial secret being revealed. Now, if you're a fan of Agent 86, Maxwell Smart, if you're old enough to know who he, who he is, he would say it's the old listening in on the secret assassination trick. So finally, let's hear the end of chapter 2 read, and we pick things up in verse 19 through to 23. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Well, we read that Mordecai happens to be in the right place at the right time to hear of a conspiracy theory happening something that will impact directly upon the empire and stability. A couple of the king's closest men, uh, we read, are planning a coup where King Xerxes gets assassinated. We're not told uh, about what this is about and why these government employees are disgruntled, but Big Thana obviously wants to be bigger and Teresh wants to be terrific. However, Mordecai intercepts the intel, maybe he sees the WhatsApp message or he comes across some assassination drawings or he follows the money, money trail, whatever it is. He promptly lets Esther know, who in turn lets her husband know. Hey, King X-Man. I don't know what Esther nicknamed her hubby, but hey, King, a couple of guys will be waiting in the bushes at your next party. They've got a big knife and it's not to cut your cake. Well, as a result, Big Thana and Teresh are caught, investigated, found guilty and hung. Really all a good day's work across the empire, all a good day's work for Esther and Mordecai. But the really important line is verse 23. All this was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. You see, some public servant writes down what happens and it's filed away in the Department of Failed Assassination Tries, or DFAT for short. Now, we need to keep this episode in mind, this failed assassination attempt, because our narrator will return in the story later to this story. We'll stop there for now, and I want us to think about how this all applies for you and me many centuries later and a million miles removed from this Persian empire, unless you've got some Persian rugs hanging around. I want to pick up on this one simple truth. That is, all across the Bible, our so-called heroes are not really that at all. I don't know, sometimes you might pick up a book or a Bible study titled Heroes of the Faith. And you might come across character studies on King David or Ruth or Elijah or Deborah or the Apostle Paul or Peter. The really bad ones will include Samson, who's a total wreck, 
or King Solomon, who's a total embarrassment. Anyway, sometimes in this Heroes of Faith roll call, you'll find the names Esther and Mordecai. Now, I know you could argue from Hebrews 11 that the New Testament author seems to highlight some of the Old Testament men and women as heroes, but what you'll find there is that he's simply commending them for one thing and one thing only. That is that they show us what genuine faith in God looks like at a particular moment in their lives. But you see, that's a far cry from calling them heroes worth following or worthy of following. But in the case of Esther and Mordecai, there's very little evidence of faith worth following or emulating. So please don't get sucked into this idea that as you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that here are some lives worth following. I think the one exception might be Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, but you've got about two lines on him, so good luck trying to call him a hero worth following. No, the real hero of the Bible, even in the book of Esther, is God himself, and more specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ. For that is what we find when we get to Paul's letter to the early church in Corinth. He is astounded that people would choose to follow after certain first century celebrity Christians. They say, I follow Peter, or I follow Apollos, or Paul, or Timothy. For us, it might be, well, I follow Piper, or the Pied Piper. I follow Tim Keller, or Philip Jensen, or Martin Isles, or Paul Tripp, or whoever you, you follow. Uh, friends, please take stock of how you read the Old Testament and New Testament characters and always read them and study them, if you will, under the heading, Great Sinners in Need of a Great Saviour. For that's what we find in this Jewish bloke caught up in Persian politics and a beauty queen married to a dirtbag king. Both Mordecai and Esther are in deep need of God's grace. They are both far from living examples to us of life under God as king. And all across the Bible stories, we find men and women, even godly men and women, who are deeply flawed, deeply stained by sin, deeply in need of God's deep, deep love and mercy, ultimately found in Christ. So let's keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the hero of the Bible story. He is the reason why we even have the story of Esther preserved in our Bibles. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Esther so far. And despite the lack of evidence in chapters 1 and 2, we thank you that we can look to the Lord Jesus to find a king worth following and a kingdom worthy of our allegiance. Amen.